Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. It started out as such fun for the three friends. It seemed like something to do on an evening when there was nothing else going, a way to have some excitement and some enjoyment in their lives. Nisa Bailey, Christopher Cole, and Thomas Miller went out driving around in Hillsborough County, Florida that night. And what they chose to do in order to have some fun during a dry and quiet time was they decided to steal stop signs. So they drove around in their car stealing stop signs. They stole 21 of them, to be exact. They were in the process of stealing another one when they saw an approaching car, and the fright that came from maybe being caught caused them to drop that stop sign and to run, get into the car, and flee. It was at that stop sign. Authorities aren't sure quite how much later. The prosecution contended it was not very much later. But it was at that stop sign that three young men, 18 years old, three 18-year-old boys, almost midnight, coming home from an evening of bowling, having a great time together, enjoying one another's company, driving down the road, they came to that intersection. They didn't realize they were supposed to stop. After all, there was no stop sign. And so they sped right through the intersection. But there was a truck, an eight-ton truck, coming down the other road with no stop sign either. And that eight-ton truck plowed into them, killing all three of them. Later, the defense would say, well, they stole all the others, and they couldn't contest that because they had the evidence. But that one they didn't do. That didn't hold up in court. Before the judge sentenced the three to 15 years in prison, Thomas Miller, one of the three, spoke to the court. Those who were there, the witnesses that saw him, said his face was contorted in pain and anguish, red from trying to hold back the sobs. He turned and he faced the families of the three 18-year-old boys. And he said, most nights I can't sleep. I lie awake and weep because I know your boys are not coming home. I'd heard the story, but I went back and found it and read it again this week. And as I read it, I just kept thinking, how can something that is so much fun end up in so much tragedy? How could people think that stealing stop signs is a good idea. And then I got to thinking, the truth is I have seen the consequences of such actions. So have you, if you happen to be in the people helping professions, a counselor 
or a pastor, a physician, one of the people helping professions, you know that you no doubt have seen the same thing. Somebody comes into your office and sits down and begins to tell a sordid, sad tale of something that started out as so much fun and ended up in so much pain. It's interesting how the story goes. There was really nothing wrong, nothing that was to be worried about. It was innocent, almost innocent at least. I mean, I saw some stop signs, but I didn't pay much heed because it wasn't going to be a problem for me. And so I went past those stop signs. But somehow it picked up momentum. And by then I didn't care if there were stop signs. The literature says, and those that I've talked with, and it's true in my own experience, that there's one line that almost always is spoken. Almost every time it appears in a story like that. And that's this line. I didn't think it would happen to me. It's not going to happen to me. Did the three friends say that as they took down the stop signs? Oh, it'll cause some, some havoc, some uncertainty. People will have fun with it. It's not going to be anything major. It won't happen to me. And then it ends up with something that began as fun ending in tragedy. We are on a journey through the ten. As we journey through the ten, today we come to the seventh. Now I thought as I worked on this passage in this sermon, I thought this is the kind of passage, the kind of sermon about which nobody shakes the pastor's hand at the door and says, thank you, pastor, I really needed that. You spoke straight to me. No, 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 no. That a, I wish my brother had been here. If only my son could have heard that. You know, my aunt, she really needs that sermon. But the problem is, it's us who are here. We're the ones taking the journey through the ten. And today we come to the seventh. It's a stop sign. I want to read it to you. It's, it's very brief. We have already found that out as we get into these, these final of the Ten Commandments. It doesn't take long to read them. Exodus 20 and verse 14 says, You shall not commit Adultery. I read this week of one teacher at a children's ministry at a church who had to teach the lesson on this and was not certain of what to say. Read the commandment, and immediately one child raised her hand, and she thought, oh, no, here it comes. She said, teacher, I don't understand this. What does the word commit mean? <laughs> she wasn't quite expecting that. Because we're looking at that other word. Thou shalt not commit adultery. The truth is, it's a stop sign. Now understand that laws like stop signs are intended to protect us. They're intended to protect something precious from the threat of something very dangerous. And so when we read this passage here and we see this boundary marker, this relationship definer, this stop sign that says... You will not commit adultery. Our question immediately is, well, from what is it protecting us? What exactly is it trying to preserve? I'd like to read to you from the second chapter of Scripture, 
Genesis chapter 2. Just two verses, reread two verses from our scripture reading this morning that describe the narrative that tells of the first marriage. Genesis chapter 2, I'll read starting in verse 24. For this reason, says the text, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Adam and Eve are given a gift, a gift of a one flesh, one spirit, one soul relationship. In fact, if you follow that account, what happens is God has one person, the man, from whom he takes a part and creates a second person, a woman. So you had one, now you have two, and then God speaks to the two of them and says, now I want you to join together and become one. That one flesh, one spirit, one soul relationship is so profound that it is intended to not only be mutually exclusive, it's just the two of us, but also permanent. That is what the commandment is trying to preserve. It's the kind of relationship which experienced within the boundaries of that fellowship, there is a profound openness, an intimacy that can be described by saying they were naked. There was a nakedness of soul, fully known and fully loved. It was so profound that they felt no shame. The tragedy is that the story continues. When the fall occurs, then all kinds of bad things begin to happen in that relationship. But as we're asking the question of what is that seventh commandment intended to preserve, we have to go back to that original marriage and say, this we have as an insight into the divine mind, the desire that God has for this reality called marriage. One soul, one mind, one heart, one body, one. When something enters into that, when someone enters into that, the pain can be devastating. I'd like to read to you the words of James Londis once again in his book, God's Finger Wrote Freedom. As he reflects on this, he says, It is this that makes adultery so devastating. In adultery, one partner is saying to the other, you are no longer special and irreplaceable. You are interchangeable with others, for I have now shared what was once unique to us with someone else. That's what drives the pain. That's why when a couple sits down in a counselor's office having experienced that pain, it is raw to a degree that few other experiences are. But by the same token, when it is lived out in the ways intended, it can bring about a joy, a delight, a celebration that otherwise is not experienced. One of you, one of you sent me something. I'm sure it's very trustworthy and dependable because it comes from that ever-reliable source, Facebook. <laughs> this is what you sent me. Jack wakes up with a huge hangover after attending his company's Christmas party. Jack is not a drinker, 
And the drinks didn't taste like alcohol at all. So somebody must have spiked the punch. He didn't remember much about the party, but he did have vague memories of coming home and being very loud and screaming at his wife. Oh, no, he thinks to himself, this is not going to be a good morning. Jack has to force himself to open his eyes, and the first thing he sees are a couple of aspirins next to a glass of water on the side table. And next to them, a single red rose. Jack sits up, sees clothing in front of him, all clean and pressed. He looks around the room and sees that it is in perfect order, spotlessly clean. He staggers to the sink to take the aspirins, only to cringe when he looks at a huge black eye staring back at him in the bathroom mirror. What in the world? Then he notices a note hanging on the corner of the mirror, written with red little hearts on it, and a kiss mark from his wife in lipstick. Honey, breakfast is on the stove. I left early to get groceries to make your favorite dinner tonight. I love you, darling. Love, Jillian. He stumbles into the kitchen, and sure enough, there's hot breakfast, hot coffee, the morning newspaper, all waiting for him. His son is at the table eating. Jack is totally confounded. Son, he asks him, what happened last night? Well, said the son thoughtfully, you came home after three in the morning, drunk and out of your mind. You fell over the coffee table and broke it. Then you threw up in the hallway and got a black eye when you ran into the door. Jack says, oh, no, oh, no. Was Mom there? Yep. Jack looks around in confusion and then asks his son, so why is everything in such perfect order and so clean? I have a rose. Breakfast is on the table waiting for me. What is going on? His son says, I don't know. The only thing I remember, the only other thing I remember is Mom dragging you to the bedroom, and when she tried to take your pants off, you kept yelling, leave me alone. I'm married. <laughs> So here's the moral of the story. <laughs> Broken coffee table, $39.99. Hot breakfast, $4.20. Two aspirins, $0.38. Cents. Being faithful, priceless. So I guess the question is, how do we be more like Jack? <laughs> how do we have that so interwoven into our fabric that that's how we respond? Because that, after all, is the stop sign that is the seventh command. I want to suggest to you two realities this morning that I think would help every single person in marriage here in that direction. Two simple realities, two simple suggestions. Number one, grow your marriage. Grow your marriage. It's been said that people who complain that the grass is greener on the other side of the fence just need to water their own lawn. Grow your marriage. Nurture the relationship. Invest in your spouse. Spend time there. Grow your marriage. It was yesteryear's flamboyant evangelist, Billy Sunday, who one day said to his listeners, praise your wife, even if it does frighten her at first. <laughs> praise her. Grow your marriage, invest in it. Remember where we are in this passage. We're in the ten, the ten words, the ten commandments. But remember where it began. 
It began back the first commandment, the first week, with that recognition, that realization that what undergirds this covenantal statement is the love and the grace and the power of God, a relationship with God. You remember that. God spoke to his people and said, I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. He's saying, I have used my power and my grace to free you. Now you are my people. Now we are in a deep, profound, covenantal relationship. And it is on that covenantal relationship, based on my infallible love, that we will build the edifice of an ongoing community of faith on that relationship. That's where it begins. This week I was talking with Stu Hardy, our pastor for media. We were talking about this, and Stu said to me, you know, I, th I think the difference between a promise and a command depends on how we relate to that issue of relationship. You remember, we saw the first week, it is possible to translate these as either commands or promises. And Stu said, maybe the difference is how we understand that relationship with God. In other words, if we revel in that relationship with Him, sink down into it, nurture our souls from it, deepen our lives in it so that we have a robust relationship, then these statements are promises. God is simply saying, if you're in that kind of relationship with me, this is what you'll do because that's how good relationships work. That's just how they work. When you have that kind of good relationship, you don't invite someone else in. You observe special time together. You honor those that are above you in the family. Those are the things you do. That's a promise. But if, on the other hand, the focus is not the relationship, but the behavior, the performance, then it's very easy to start trying to gauge, to judge. How am I doing? Doing better today? Yesterday was bad. Tomorrow might be bad. And we begin to judge how we're behaving. And those promises shift to commands. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do the other. And we lose the joy. If that's true with the entire ten, is it not also true in our relationship with the one and only in our lives? That it is as we grow that relationship, as we sink down more deeply into that person's life and they into ours, then that becomes a promise. You won't commit adultery because this has become so deep so meaningful, so precious, that you would allow nothing else to damage it. So suggestion number one, grow your marriage. Nurture that relationship. Invest in your spouse. I want to give you some specific areas and questions to think about. I draw these from John Gottman, John Gottman, possibly the premier marital researcher in our country today. He offers eight areas with some thoughts and questions attached to ask, am I growing my marriage? So listen to these. First one, interest in your spouse. When your partner complains about something, do you listen? Are you curious about why he or she is mad? Interest in your spouse. Second, 
expressions of affection. Do you hold hands with your spouse, offer a romantic kiss, embrace your partner when greeting them at the end of the day? Expressions of affections can happen in small ways, both within and outside of conflict. Affection. Third, recognition of how much your spouse matters to you. Gottman says, our motto for marriage, making marriage last is small things often. Listen to that. Small things often. Off. No way for some great grand event. Just do small things often. The question then is, do you often act in small ways that demonstrate you care how much you care about your marriage? Fourth, intentional appreciation. How you think about your spouse influences how you treat them. By focusing on the positives of your marriage, such as the good moments from your past and your partner's admirable traits, you put positive energy into your relationship. So, how often do you express your positive thinking and give your partner a verbal compliment? Fifth, finding opportunities for agreement. Do you intentionally look for places where your spouse's viewpoint is valid? An alliance in conflict, even minor, can fundamentally shift how couples fight. Stand in their shoes. The sixth one, empathy and apology. Empathy is one of the deepest forms of human connection. When you empathize with your spouse, you, under, you show that you understand and feel what your partner is feeling. How long has it been since you said, it makes sense to me that you feel the way you do? How long since you said, I'm sorry I hurt your feelings? That makes me sad. Seventh, accepting your spouse's perspective. You don't have to agree on everything. When was the last time you said to your spouse, I don't see it the same way, but I respect your perspective? And then finally, laughing together. When was the last time you laughed together? Most couples have inside jokes they only share with each other. This highlights the exclusivity a couple has. Grow your marriage. If you want to pay attention to that stop sign, that stop sign that is intended to protect your marriage, then grow your marriage. That's the best place to begin. That's suggestion number one. Suggestion number two, guard your boundaries. Number one, grow your marriage. Number two, guard your boundaries. Think again about the ten. We've said this before, but it bears repeating again. The ten begins with a statement of exclusivity. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. No other gods besides me. In the first statement, God says, here they are. These are the boundaries around this relationship. Inside of this, there's only room for you and me. That's it. Boundaries. Guard your boundaries. That's where danger creeps in. You remember, you remember, no doubt, the interview by Princess Diana sometime before her death when on American television a reporter asking her about the state of her marriage, she said, it got a little crowded with three of us. Got a little crowded. Guard your boundaries. Isn't that where marriages begin? I said it before. We're thinking about two marriages coming up. We're thrilled and delighted. 
I can already tell you what's going to happen at each of our kids' marriage because I've seen it happen at every wedding I've been a part of. They will stand at a moment at an altar and they will hear the question, do you take this person in sickness or in health, in prosperity or adversity, and forsaking all other, keep you only unto him, only unto her, so long as you both shall live. Those are the boundaries. And now they need to be guarded. They need to be protected, reinforced. And in today's climate, in today's culture, that is very hard. In a world with internet, in a world of social media, in a world where people's phones are locked, sometimes even from spouses, it's hard to guard the boundaries. It's tough. One example, Dave Carter, a Christian counselor, not far from us down Orange County, has written a book entitled Close Calls, What Adulterers Want You to Learn About Protecting Your Marriage. How's that for a provocative title? I listened to Carter in a seminar. And here's what Carter said. He has made this his specialty, dealing with couples where infidelity is present, trying to help them, first of all, prevent it, and then if it's happened, trying to help them survive it. He's dealt with many, 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 many couples. He says, here's one thing I've learned in today's climate. If you have an old flame, high school, college, with whom you reconnect on Facebook, and if that reconnection leads you off of the public site into the private chat, if it is possible, you will be meeting very soon. Then, he says, I've seen it time and again. If you meet within 30 days, you will be in bed. I've seen it too many times, he says, to disbelieve it. So when I say guard your boundaries, it's vital. So easy to be secretive. So easy to hide. So easy for something to be eroding the heart's faithfulness that in the beginning is undetected. It just starts out as so much fun. And it can end in so much tragedy. And so, we guard the boundaries. About two years ago, a little over two years ago, Time Magazine had a story that they did, featured an article entitled, Is Monogamy Over? Well, you can imagine, it offered various opinions, including things like monogamy is a charade that leads to institutionalizing dishonesty, and monogamy is just an option, not the default, and there's no right, there's no wrong, variety of different options. To Time's credit, they found a Christian pastor who would write something about monogamy from the Christian perspective. The name of the pastor is Andy Stanley. So I want to read you what Andy Stanley wrote in this piece, Is Monogamy Over? He started out talking about something that is obsolete. Some of you might even not recognize these first two words, but here's how he began. 
Cassette tapes are obsolete. <laughs> Monogamy is more like an endangered species. Rare, valuable, something to be fed and protected. Perhaps an armed guard should be assigned to every monogamous couple to ward off poachers. Perhaps not. The value a culture places on monogamy determines the welfare of its women and children. Women and children do not fare well in societies that embrace polygamy or promiscuity. In the majority of cases, sexual freedom undermines the financial freedom of women. Sexual freedom eventually undermines the financial and emotional security of children. If we are only biology, none of the above really matters. If we are only biology, monogamy was probably a flawed concept from the start. But very few of us live as if we are only biology. As a pastor, I've officiated my share of weddings and I've done my share of premarital counseling. I always ask couples why they're getting married. Survival of the species never makes the list. <laughs> the I and you that inhabit our bodies desire more than another body. We desire intimacy, to know and to be fully known without fear. Intimacy is fragile. Intimacy is powerful. Intimacy is fueled by exclusivity. So no, monogamy is not obsolete. It's endangered. But so is the buffalo. Perhaps we happily monogamous couples should relocate to Yellowstone. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's the good news. We actually don't have to relocate to Yellowstone. We just have to remember some things. We have to remember that, that laws and laws like stop signs are, are there to protect us. They're there to protect something precious from something that is, is very threatening to the life of that reality. We have to remember we need other people in our lives, people who are accountability partners, people with whom we can share and be open, people who will call us to task. And we have to remember we have a God who is always with us. We have to remember that when we leave this place, when we leave the side of our spouse, when we're in the company of other attractive people, we may be there, but we never are far from the presence of God. The God who created this concept called marriage, the God who built boundaries around it to protect it, is the God who is ever and always with us. The God who gives us His love, gives us the power to keep the promises that we make by His grace. So guard the boundaries. Remember the stop signs. Grow your marriage. And there's one other thing. I cannot speak on a topic as sensitive as this without speaking to those here this morning, those of our number this morning, who have blown past the stop sign, who never even saw the stop sign, whose life is either headed toward or has already experienced a profoundly painful collision. Let me speak to you a number that may be larger than we might wish. Let me speak to you and say, the grace of God is for you. The grace of God is inexhaustible, always ready, always available. It is based on His undying, His unyielding, His unflinching, His unwavering love for us. 
It is a grace that is grander than any sin you have committed. It is the grace that causes a father to stand on a doorstep, gazing down the lane, trying to see when that prodigal daughter, that prodigal son, will come staggering toward home. It will drive that father to run, sweep that person up into his embrace, and say, enough with the apologies. We're going to have a party because you came home. The one who was dead is alive again. The one who was lost is found. So if that's your story, that's not the end of the story. Just read this book. Read the Old Testament. Those people with whom God established such a profound covenant spent not years, not decades, but centuries violating that relationship. And God just couldn't let go. Just could not let go. Just kept saying, let's try it again. Let's do it one more time. Come back yet again. And it was only after there was absolute obstinate refusal that he said, okay, th then I'm still going to have Israel. I'll just make it spiritual Israel. You're still welcome into it, but I'm going to bring others in as well. That's the love and the grace of God. Trust me, you have done nothing that remotely resembles what the Israelites descended into for centuries, and yet that love was constant. So that one of the later prophets would say, he will cast all of your sins into the depths of the sea. And the old black preacher said, yeah, and then he'll put up a no fishing sign. Not here. That's past. If you have blown past that stop sign, that's what God offers you. His immeasurable grace and love. And it just could be, it just could be that that same grace will work on a wounded spouse. And that wounded spouse might find it within her heart, his heart, to say, let's try. Let's try to grow our marriage and guard our boundaries. You know those three young people? went out just to have a good time, led to three deaths. It's not a bad thing to remember them. It's not a bad thing to remember that what starts as fun can end in tragedy. It's not a bad thing to remember that God's law is there to protect us and to protect our marriages. God of grace, thank you for your high standard and your high call. Thank you for your grace. At one level or another, at one moment or another, in one way or another, every single one of us desperately needs your grace. We thank you for that. And now give us the power to grow. In the name of Jesus, amen.